Let me just take the jacket. Octopus was weak. Call me Doctor Octopus. Rebellion. We're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. We're Venom. Green Goblin doesn't take orders from insects. The Green Goblin swaps them into oblivion. It's a conspiracy, I tell you. They're all working together to raise my blood pressure. Tell me there's something better. Go ahead, try. Welcome back, Spectacular fans, to another episode of Spectacular Radio. I'm your host, Greg Bashansky, and joining us again is Kristen Zanero. Hi, guys. And joining us also again every month, thankfully, is the supervising producer and story editor, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hello. And joining us for the first time is a very special guest, series writer Andrew Robinson. Good day. Uh, So we're here to discuss group therapy. And maybe do a little bit of group therapy with each other. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But, uh, well, I'm guessing I'm going to have to but, be the psychologist for all of you then. <laughs> yes, yes, three nerdy guys. I've <laughs> got a couch. Yay! <laughs> uh, it's good you have a couch because I could really use a nap. <laughs> oh, is this like back in the spectacular day, days when I would visit you at the uh, studio and you like you were about to fall asleep any second? <laughs> Oh, there was no. Yeah, sleep. I uh, I worked very late at night, and I had a couch in my office, uh, and I did tend to use it for naps. Uh, and it was awkward because uh, the way the office was laid out, um, to get to one set of offices, people basically had to walk through my office to get there, um, which normally didn't bother me at all. They just head on through and wave or whatever. But you know, um, it's awkward for everybody if I'm in there sleeping while they're doing that. So uh, it wasn't ideal, but, you know, you make do. Indeed. So um, I understand, before we get started, I understand you two go way back. We do, we do. but only to, only to seventh grade. <laughs> Slightly before electricity. <laughs> in fact, we have our high school reunion this weekend. That's true. It's cool. our <laughs> fifth uh, high school reunion. Uh, we'll do the math ourselves. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But um, so, so we usually ask most of our guests this question. But um, Andrew, what's your uh, superhero origin? How did you get into the business? How did you first discover this character? How did I discover Spider-Man or Gre- Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Both? I'm kidding. <laughs> I think I discovered, one of those you want. I discovered Spider-Man slightly before Greg. Um, or before I discovered Greg. Uh, you know, going down to the corner drugstore and uh, and perusing the, uh, you know, the little circular rack. And Spider-Man was the kid that I, you know, the character that I most easily and immediately identified with because he was you know, scrawny and quick-witted and, you know, uh, everything he did as a hero screwed up everything he did as a student. And he was just easy to identify with. Loved him. I think that speaks to most of us. And um, how did you get into the animation business? Um, I had been actually writing a lot of drama pilots 
in the hopes of getting staffed in drama. <clears throat> and I was working in MTV. And uh, I had a friend who was producing a series um, called Roughnecks, the Starship Trooper Chronicles, which Greg was story editing uh, on. It was a weird situation because there were a bunch of story editors and they kind of shotgunned uh, things. And, and I, my, my script was not with Greg, but with a, another story editor. But uh, he, uh, my friend who was producing read a, a sample and said, hey, I'm going to throw an episode at you. And um, it kind of took off from there. And I wound up doing two more for them. And then, you know, I got a good referral and I continued to work. I've heard good things about that show. I've never seen it. And now the DVD set is hideously expensive on Amazon. So I missed out. It was pretty dark um, in in more ways than one. It was sort of dark lighting and Greg you 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 know can chime in on this because you have a better handle on it than I do but I remember watching well, it on I TV. Mean, we did these series, five episodes was... we did these five episode arcs on the show. Um so they really differed. I mean like the Pluto arc which was the first one is set on a atmosphere free planet so it's basically eternal night. Um it's so far from the sun. And so that one was pretty dark. But then, you know, uh, my first arc was the jungle arc, and that was much warmer and much brighter in color. Um, I, I think it was a great show. The tragedy of that show, well, the causes of it are myriad, but the, the big tragedy of that show is that um, they ran out of money. Uh, and so the last arc of five episodes um, got more or less reduced down to to uh one one episode and instead they did four clip shows um (laughs) instead of the last four episodes and so you wind up actually taking the cast of characters to their darkest point and then the four episodes which we wrote and recorded which were designed to raise frankly, spoilers, planet Earth to victory at the end, um, never got made. So you wind up ending, uh, I'm sorry, the last three never got made. So we did two of the last five, which were set on Earth. um, And uh, that was also my arc. I I had the jungle arc in the middle and then the final arc set on Earth. um, And... uh, and in the first two, things get to their absolute low point. And then in the last three, we build back up and we have victory, but they never made those last three. So and so the series ends on this incredible down note. Um, and it ends because they never made the last three where they struggle back to victory. And that was the hugest bummer for me. I remember Jeff Klein, who was one of the executive producers, took all the story editors out to lunch and there were like five of them. Um, and, uh, sort of broke the news over this lunch that they weren't going to make those last three episodes, um, and they were going to do clip shows instead. They actually did four clip shows. There was some other episode that was, um, that was part of the second to last arc that 
also got shelved because uh, it was considered very difficult to make. Um, One of those episodes was mine. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, it was a huge bummer way to go out. You know, I think it was a great series. It had a terrific arc to it. Um, it had incredibly great writers on it and a, and a really interesting voice cast. And, um, you know, it was one of the first CGI shows for television. I mean, obviously, CGI animation had been done before, but not on a TV budget. But it was ideal for uh, CGI um, because it was set in the future and everyone wore these skin-tight battle suits. And it was military, so they all, even the girls, had short <clears throat> or shortish hair. So all the, and, you know, the bad guys were bugs. And you could make 100,000 bugs coming over the hill at you because it was just one model that you were repeating. Right. Um, and so it was just the perfect show for CGI as opposed to the next show I did for Sony, which was Max Steel, um, which should not have been a CGI show at all. Which Andrew, I think you did. Was that the first show that we did together? I mean, that we um, were actually working together on. I think it did might have been. Did you do Max Steel? I did a Max Steel, although it might have been Marsha. Okay. Well, I can't remember which was our first show. Like, it was probably Witch. Uh, yeah, I remember seeing Andrew's name in the writing credits for Witch. Um, but you know, Max was a show that should never have been CGI because it was set in the present with in theory, normal clothing and normal hair and a different international city every episode, but real world. So you can't have Tokyo looking like Berlin, looking like, you know, Nebraska or whatever. Um, and so for CGI, that was an incredibly difficult show to do well. And yet, you know, they insisted on doing it in CGI. Um, but Troopers Roughnecks, that was a show that was ideal for CGI in it. So it looked pretty damn good. Yeah, um, and you could even fake a lot of landscapes repeated. Right, yeah, because we do these arcs. So, you know, you do five arcs, I mean, five episodes in the first arc all set on Pluto. You do five episodes all set on this ice world. So you got to reuse these locations and the locations whether it was the jungle or the ice planet or the water planet or whatever, they were all relative. I mean, they were all interestingly designed, but they were relatively generic enough that it allowed us to, uh, you know, repeat use of backgrounds and save money there. And like I said, it was just a really smartly developed for CGI in a way that um, other shows like Max Steel weren't. Um, and uh, so it's sort of a bummer that it didn't get more widely seen. But again, you know, it wasn't designed to have this dark ending that it wound up with. It was designed to have a victorious ending where, the, where humanity wins the war and fights off the bugs. But instead, it, it sort of ends with the bugs having seemingly completely won and the humans are in retreat mode. Um, and you see, I hear an anecdote like this, and I think to myself, all these people who say that Spectacular Spider-Man ended on a cliffhanger, or Young Justice ended on a cliffhanger, even though they didn't, I hear a story like this, and I almost want to tell those people, check this out if you want to see what an actual, at least in this case, unintentional cliffhanger looks like. Well, and yeah, and this wasn't, and still, people are misusing the word cliffhanger. Even this wasn't a cliffhanger. Um, you know, 
it it just plays like we're all two. You know, I mean, not not like we're all hanging from a cliff or we've got guns to our heads or anything like that. It's it's we've lost. It plays like we've lost. Um, and it's not a cliffhanger. Even that is not a cliffhanger. People write me about Young Justice in particular ending on a cliffhanger, and I'm like, what? What was the cliffhanger? I, you know, they confuse the notion of loose ends. That is, not everything's wrapped up in a tidy little bow with the idea of a cliffhanger, which which is about leaving your characters in some immediate jeopardy, which we which I would never do at the end of a season. Um, and it's two very different animals. We're way off okay. topic, aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah but we're having fun, aren't we? <laughs> I suppose we should talk about that uh, hero in the red and blue. Um, so, uh, Captain America, I'm kidding, but Superman. Civil War was good. <laughs> Civil War. <laughs> yeah, that's not, uh, in this episode, there ain't a lot of red and blue. No, there isn't. Actually, there's none, come to think of it. I mean, there's some red on Vulture, but that's about it. But um, this is a very good episode. I mean, a lot happens in it. It's a very big episode. A lot of action, a huge action sequence, which we'll talk about later. But um, when he brought... I, I was about to ask when he brought the six together, what made you choose each member to the team? But then I realized these are the villains we've met aside from Goblin and uh, Lizard, who Ock wouldn't have even had access to. Uh, right. Well, Lizard, uh, for obvious reasons, didn't exist at that moment. Um, and, you know, Spider-Man lampshades that, comments on why aren't Gob- Gobby and Lizard there. Lizard and, there, right. Um, uh, he's got that line of quippage. Um, they have mixed tickets. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and Goblin uh, um, is... Uh, in theory, off the table as well, because at this point we believe that Harry Osborn it was the Green Goblin, and Harry's been sent off to Europe, and um, and the Goblin therefore is gone. Um, and so, really, the, otherwise these are the six villains. I guess you could argue where's Chameleon, but um, uh, other than that, uh, you know, these were the six villains that were available to for uh, Doc Ock to, to unite. And I really like Ock here. I mean, this is his only time really in prison in this series. I know when we see him again, he's in Ravencroft after this, but um, I just like how he coordinated all this. I mean, obviously the big man and Hammerhead were both involved. Uh, and in the 90s cartoon, I remember at the time Kingpin was actually the leader of the, well, they called them the Insidious Six on that show because for some reason the Fox Network censors did not want them to use the word sinister. Well, actually, this is the first time we see Auk do this in any television series. It's, we've only ever seen Kingpin. So that was actually a pretty welcome change for me. I mean, Ock was in the 90s show, he just wasn't the leader of the six. Well, he wasn't utilized properly like he was here. Yeah. And and it's just fun to see. I also, uh, although, I'm, although I am curious mm-hmm. at, at the moment right now, I mean, what was Shocker's incentive? For, I mean, obviously he was ordered to st- stick with them, but um, you would think maybe uh, Tombstone would want Shocker back on his side. I mean, or did he just want to keep tabs on these other five supervillains? Yeah, I mean, when you think about sides, that's sort of off-premise, you know. At this stage, um, keep in mind that, that 
Tombstone's objective is to keep Spider-Man off balance, busy fighting big super criminals so that he can't be running around thwarting regular crime, which is where Tombstone's bread and butter is. Um, you know, Tombstone doesn't make money off the big supervillains. Um, he doesn't care about them. Um, his money comes out of all the thousands of small scale crime that goes on on a regular basis day in, day out. Um, his problem was that Spider-Man was really cutting into that profit. Um, but if Spider-Man's busy fighting the big bads, so to speak, then profit comes back because everything else is beneath his notice. So the notion of saying, well, yeah, let's, uh, let me send my guy, Shocker, to help you out, why not? Um, because they're not in opposition. I mean, you don't want to confuse what happens later in season two with the situation here at the, toward the end of season one. And there, you know, things alter over time, which was one of the things that was fun about the show, that nothing was static. But, um, but at this stage, you know, uh, the big man's all about um, funding the creation of these supervillains for just that reason. So here, a bunch of these supervillains are getting together and as you said, you know, he's got at least two reasons to want Shocker in the group. One is um, to keep an eye on those other five. Um, and the other is, uh, again, why not? Because this is part and parcel of what was, in essence, his plan, which was to keep Spider-Man off balance and too busy to, to deal with everyday crime. Yeah. And... Let's turn back to a more behind-the-scenes question, since we've got a staff writer on, as well as a story editor and a supervising producer. Describe the process of how a script gets made, edited, and what each of those positions actually means. I believe you've both been on both sides of that equation. I would say that's true. Uh, Greg has been kind enough to use me and on a number of shows, and, and the moment I got an opportunity, um, I hired him to write for me. <clears throat> so on Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a symbiotic sort of process. <laughs> <laughs> irony of irony I mean, there. On so uh, Spider-Man, on Spectacular specifically, um, uh, I came up with all the springboards in advance um, of bringing any of the writers aboard. Um and got those basic springboards approved by Sony and Marvel. And um, I think I'm trying to remember the chronology of this, but I think kids WB as well. Um, and then uh, what we do is we bring, we do break well, on Spider-Man was probably like three or four episodes at a time, something yeah. like that. And so we'd bring all the writers in, so that would be uh, Andrew and Kevin Hopps and uh, Nicole Dubuque and uh, Matt Wayne, I think, um, mm -hmm. was the team on that show. And and we'd go through, uh, you know, we just, everyone would work on every episode, you know, so we'd have this day-long meeting. So it'd be like a writer's um, room. 
where we'd put yeah. stuff up on on uh, cards or a whiteboard and beat out three acts, a teaser in three acts. Yeah, Spider-Man was always uh, my very low-tech bulletin board with multicolored index cards thing. And we... Uh, We'd have the basic story up there, and then we'd just start talking through how we were actually going to execute it. And everyone would help everyone else out, but at the end of the day, every one of these writers was walking away with a specific script that was theirs. Um, and I can't remember uh, so on this show whether the order of events, like uh, did we assign the script? So like when we were talking it through, did you already know? which one was yours or did we break them first and then assign them out? I can't remember. Um, My recollection was that in season one, the first time we went around because we tended to um, go in rotation. So that on the, in the first, on the first day we beat out, you know, you had already done the pilot one and two. If I, you had done the pilot. Uh, so yeah, two, three, one. four, and five, I guess, we we beat all those out over either a day or two days, and then they were assigned at that point. And so the order of season one was sort of put not in stone, but at least sort of laid out. We would be doing every third or every fourth episode. So if I did right, episode so you four, got a, you got eleven by virtue or, of the fact, right? Because you had done seven, you got eleven just from the numbers right so i did four seven and eleven in the first season got it you got a lot of pretty big ones you got this one you had catalyst which introduced the green goblin you had but we'll get to that one much later uh gangland which i think is one of the best (laughs) episodes of the series (laughs) and uh, i'm sure i'm missing a few but those three really stand out well i appreciate it uh gangland was a tremendous amount of fun to do uh, at, 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 you know, we don't won't talk about that episode now, but on another time. But uh, to that point, uh, something that I found true of just about every episode that we did was that Greg encouraged me, and I am assuming other people, to sort of research real locations in New York City and see how you could utilize that for great action. So I, you know, looked at as many pictures and, you know, films of uh, Times Square as I could. And how do you know, how do you go about, you know, where the where all the Broadway theaters are and how do I utilize that space for action? And then the same being true of Central Park, like that bridge is an iconic place um, yeah. where that battle takes place. And so that was a lot of fun. And I feel like it. I used to think like I want to make sure that New York City is a character in the in the show, and you know the the uh, directors did an amazing job of helping realize that. 
Well, I agree as it should be, and as a New Yorker, I definitely appreciated it because Spectacular Spider-Man did this, Gargoyles did this. I mean, New York really felt like another cast member. I mean, I would recognize places that felt more authentic. I mean, a lot of action cartoons did take place in New York, but some of them didn't really take advantage of the fact that they were in New York. You would see the same alleys or buildings, or I remember one, this always stood out to me, but I don't remember what show it was. Apparently Times Square was right around the corner from, at the time, the World Trade Center. Oh my! <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> that's that's a horrifying notion. Yeah, and uh, and it's always good to um, it always works out. I think best when you really bring this place to life. I mean, uh, Kristen talked about an episode that took place in Bo- of another show that took place in Boston oh, months ago, where they obviously didn't do any no, research. And... I had a bad time with that. <laughs> okay, we won't go there. We won't Don't go bring there. Back but, the horrific uh... memories. That's why I enjoy this so much. I mean, I've only lived in New York for six years, but I do see everything subtly nuanced and shown in proper form, and I enjoy that. Well, we made an effort. I mean, the biggest challenge New York-wise, frankly, was that, um, you know, Pete traditionally has grown up in Forest Hills, which is not in Manhattan, but he went to Midtown High, which is in Manhattan. So we created it as, you know, it was a weird sort of error for Stan, frankly, back in the day, you know, who set the high school in a Manhattan location, but set, you know, the living situation in Queens. Um, And I always thought it was odd. So that's why um, uh, in our show, it was uh, a Midtown Manhattan magnet school. In other words, it was a magnet school for science and um, uh, acting and uh, civics um, so that, you know, you, you had to sort of apply to get into it. It was still a public school, public education, but it was kind of special. So kids from all over the five boroughs, like Mary Jane from Staten Island or uh, Pete and Flash from Queens or uh, um, Harry and Gwen from and Liz and Mark from Manhattan itself. They're all they could all be at this school. Um, I don't think we established where some of the other kids lived. Other than yeah, that I was wondering kids. where Sally was from <laughs> with with that Joycey accent. <laughs> um, but uh, but you know that was the idea behind Midtown Manhattan because, you know, I didn't like the idea that Pete, you know, could leave the Parker home and jog a couple blocks and suddenly be in Manhattan. So it's like, nope, you know, he's, he's got to swing over the bridge to get home from, uh, you know, we see that I think in uh, a few episodes where he's, uh, been doing a fight in Manhattan and then has to get home. And sometimes we just dissolve and skip over the trip itself. But I never wanted to imply that somehow Forest Hills and Midtown were right next to each other. And, and, you know, I only lived in New York for three years, but, you know, New York has a pulse to it and, and it's got, you know, we wanted to be as true to it as we could in the same way that, you know, we tried to be true to the seasons and everything like that. I think we're getting into fall and, this episode and um yeah they're all wearing heavier jackets now not winter jackets but they're almost there 
right? And so we just had some, it was always good to do that. So I think, uh, you know, Andrew's right. We encouraged all the writers and to do that and then brought to, and then brought that stuff forward to the, uh, to the artists so that it could inspire what they were doing as well. And yeah, I mean, Times Square looked and felt like Times Square. I've spent enough time down there. I never looked at it and said, this is definitely not Times Square. I mean, I suppose the only thing that's often is just the limits, limitations of animation are sometimes it doesn't feel as populated as the real Times Square would. But again, limits of huh. an, animation. I mean, it, it, I mean, you work with what you've got and you did a fantastic job. Well, also, even now it's a little dated because Times Square has changed quite a bit even since, just since we... Uh, um, did that episode because now, of course, um, there are these, you know these huge sort of walking areas um, where they're, I mean, where where the streets where cars were, you know, um, and right. uh, it's altered quite a bit from even. I mean, it's not like we're talking about gargoyles here. We're talking about a show that's only, you know. Um, eight uh, years old. Eight years old, and and just in those eight years, Times Square has changed significantly. We do it differently now than we did then. Um, but you know, I think the Times Square sequence is a lot of fun. It was fun having Aunt May try to protect Spider-Man. I love that part yeah. so much. Oh, me too. And I have to say, that's a nice change of pace. I mean, I know you've mostly kept true to the original comics, but I'm kind of happy to see an Aunt May that isn't going on about, oh, that awful Spider-Man. That awful, awful Spider-Man. I mean... <laughs> I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> well, she would do that in the, in the classic comic books as Stan Lee did, and uh, I'm kind of... And uh, don't get me wrong, she's a fun character, but this Aunt May feels a little or a lot savvier than uh, Stan Lee's Aunt May. Actually, it's one of the yeah, big I, things I mean, that I, says. I think part of the thing is trying to contemporize her. Um, one thing that we weren't doing is trying to make her incredibly young and hot. My cousin Vinny. Um, you know, and I, I think Marissa Tomei is very engaging in the movie, but I, I just sit there and go, it just feels ageist to me. It's like, you know, I, I understand the argument that Peter's young enough that, um, that, you know, his dad's older brother's wife wouldn't necessarily be, uh, that old, but it also doesn't say that she couldn't be that old, that Ben and May couldn't have been older. And to me, uh, and you see it with Jonathan and Martha Kent going back to Smallville and, um, and certainly in the recent films and, uh, and certainly it's Diane Sally Field. Um, but you, this notion of making Aunt May younger and younger every time, um, bugs me, I have to admit. Um, and I loved Spider-Man in that movie and I even liked Marissa Tomei, but I just don't like that decision personally. Um, mm. my personal preference would have been not to continue to make Aunt May younger and younger every time. And that's not something that we wanted to do on the show. Um, on the other hand, we did want to make her contemporary, so we didn't want to make her as oblivious as she sometimes was. I mean, there would be moments in the comics where Aunt May would see Spider-Man um, save someone's life, and she'd still root for the villains over Spider-Man. I'm like, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, 
Yeah, they tried to retcon that at some point in around issue 400 in the 90s. It said that she figured out who he was long before that, and she hated the notion that her nephew was putting himself in danger, so it was kind of subconscious, but I'm not entirely sure I bought it. Then they re- revealed that that wasn't the real Aunt May anyway. It was a genetically modified actress who was replaced by... who Norman Osborne replaced the... Re- Comics are weird. <laughs> yeah, let's not get into the lunacy of that one. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's a big episode for me on a lot of levels. So we get to see her defend Spider-Man before she, you know, she takes the big uh, hit there. And I know in the comics, she and Ock kind of had a thing going on for a little bit. She almost married Ock in one story, which is, uh, it was just, I assume Ock's nod here, lines to her is how he gentlemanly got was a nod to that. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's we want Doc to be in character, and Doc has no reason to be rude. You know, he is erudite and and elegant in his thinking. Um, so even though he's ruthless, you know, there's no reason to be rude. Uh, yeah. And so <laughs> that that sort of fit. And plus, Peter McNichol as as Doc Ock is so great doing that. That shtick. Oh, uh, yeah. I f- in fact, he takes it, uh, it, he stops it from being shtick and he makes it very real. Um, so it, it's uh, just a lot of a lot of fun to have. And Deborah Strang, you know, I love Deborah's performance as Aunt May. Um, and so Deborah and, um, and Peter going back and forth, that's a lot of fun. Actually, I were think they it's... recording together? Were they in the room together, or did they have separate schedule? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Were they recording together, or did they have separate schedules? Or do you remember? I can't remember specifically. I mean, generally, we tried to record the cast together as much as possible. Every once in a while, someone would be unavailable for one reason or another, and we'd have to pick them up later. Um, but, you know, as a general <laughs> rule we'd try to bring them together to record, you know, everybody together to record an entire episode. And, uh, um, for, I have no particular reason to think that these two didn't record this together. Right. It doesn't stick in my memory as one where we didn't get it. That was a full, full room that day. Yeah. Is that, as I recall, especially when I watched the extras on the DVD and the Blu-ray, they chose that day to film the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff because they're recording dialogue for that episode. And there was a roundtable written of the script, I think. No, no, the, you're thinking of the first episode if you're talking about the roundtable. We only ever did a roundtable once, and it was for that promotional footage, and it was the very first episode, which had, you know, a ton of characters in it and a huge cast because... In that first episode, we tried to introduce almost all the villains up front. But uh, that was the only episode we ever did a, a roundtable read of because we don't do that. That's a that's just we don't have the money and the time to do that generally. So if it weren't for promotional reasons, we would not have done that. Right. So just well, the first episode. Yeah. Well, it was definitely the uh, Sinister Six episode. This one where they brought the cameras into the recording booth. I was uh, watching I the extra. That's possible. Well, yeah, it was. I watched it earlier today. It was definitely that. It had uh, Clancy Brown doing Rhino and uh, Robert England as Vulture, etc. And uh, but yeah, 
and very good episode. Again, uh, this is a question that's been bugging me for a while. I know you didn't create any original characters for this show, but that actor who turns up, St. John Devereaux, I know in season two he becomes the uh, drama professor. I've been searching for a while. I can't find hide nor hair of him in any of the comics. He must be Did really you obscure. look at uh, Mary Jane Watson when she worked on a soap opera? It's been a while. I mean, that must have been in the early 90s. I don't remember exactly when it was, but um, uh, Sinjin Devereaux was uh, the director of the soap opera that Mary Jane worked on. Oh! I actually just had that moment of clarity as soon as you said soap opera. I'm like, wait, <laughs> nope, I know this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, never let it be said that you don't mind these things for the most obscure characters. It's kind of awesome. <laughs> actually, it's very awesome. <laughs> and uh, this is one... Th- scene we definitely have to talk about Eddie Brock and MJ's date mostly oh. because a lot of people myself included at the time kind of misinterpreted it here and I think he once postured a lot of us are bringing our foreknowledge of what Eddie would become to that scene but it was still one of the, maybe it's not the worst first date in the history of the world but it's up there it seems like it was a really angry guy who hooked up with his now former buddy's girl and was really pissed off at the whole situation and taking it out on her. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, Eddie uh, and Andrew, feel free to jump in, but I think the idea is, is that Eddie, on the one hand, is this uh, guy who's got a lot of stored up anger. So what he's really trying to do is hit on MJ to steal. He thinks that Pete and MJ are an item. But yeah, so he's trying to hit on MJ, win her over so he can steal her away from Pete to get back at Pete. But he's so goddamn angry that the date's miserable and there's no way she'd ever go out with him again. Um, He can't help sort of ranting um, about uh, Batman versus, I'm sorry, about uh, (laughs) Pete. And um, fairness, that would unhinge just about anybody. We had to. Uh, (laughs) And so, you know, despite the fact that it's all but guaranteed to make sure he's not getting lucky that night, um, he can't stop himself. Um, And so he goes on. Then you throw in with that what what, um, I've talked about before on the show, which is that uh, we were really setting up uh, Pete and Eddie as as these parallel figures or, or mirror images of each other down to the idea that the plane crash where Pete's parents died, Eddie's parents were both also on that plane. They also died there, but because Pete had been in May, he grows up cherishing life. And Eddie who didn't have that kind of support grows up sort of fascinated with death which means, and we've shown this in multiple episodes, that Eddie takes stupid risks. You know, it's one thing for Spider-Man to throw down against the lizard, but Eddie throws down against the lizard. Um, Eddie throws down against Electro. Um, Eddie takes dumb risks. So even though all that's going on here is that he's on a motorcycle, he's, you know, he's, he's slowing in between cars. He's running red lights because that's just how Eddie drives. Um, that's just how Eddie rolls, so to speak. And so you throw in the, the combination of those two things. 
And I understand why people, I'm not quite sure what the, I don't remember what the big misinterpretation was, but um, what I think what it was is that the combination of those two factors made people think he was sort of trying to hurt MJ, which he wasn't. He was actually trying to woo her, um, just doing a really crappy job of it. Yeah, I would say sort of in his head, he's he's trying to present his case, you know, that that the guy that you like is a bad guy. And here's why. But he's not making a case for himself, uh, you know, and, and also in my head, I think we were, you know, uh, setting up the, the fact like as he as he goes into, uh, you know, be rageaholic, that is something that's going to draw the the uh, symbiote to him. Yeah, exactly. All those negative so emotions, happens, all that anger, that all that rage. That happens in the next episode, right? Uh, yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, Eddie, you should just, oh, Eddie, you should just sat down with a therapist. <clears throat> but that does make me wonder exactly what kind of background he had. I mean, obviously Peter and Aunt May and Uncle Ben, was Eddie just shunted off from foster home to foster home? You know, we never really... Um, got to the point, uh, you know, I was actually planning it for down the road to sort of in, investigate Eddie's background a little more and, um, and the background of, of both his parents and uh, Pete's parents and what happened on that plane and all that sort of stuff um, was all stuff that, you know, if we had gotten more seasons, we would have actually gotten to. I had plans for that. Um, yeah, you... Yeah, he did reveal to us in the first show that Norman stole the uh, web formula from them because his parents developed it. And uh, someone actually wrote a fan mail to us asking if uh, Norman Osborne was involved with their deaths at all because he was in the movies. And I, of course, I'm not asking that because I know there's no chance in hell you're going to answer that one. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the basics is that we didn't get to the point where we were developing it enough to get specific on what happened to Eddie. I thought about foster homes. I thought about him being shunted to some distant relative who just wasn't nearly as nice as Ben and May Parker thought about a lot of things, but because we never got to that, we never made any final decision, honestly, about it. And of course, you know, the Eddie Brock from the comics is different enough that um, there's not a lot, in terms of his background to go on, um, or at least there wasn't back then. I, I, I won't no, no, he, I'm all caught up now with Eddie, but yeah, and uh, he, in, in the 90s, they gave him a very distant father who was uh, basically Norman Osborne to his Harry. They kind of repeated those same beats in the early 90s. Yeah, so I don't think it was the right direction to go with that character, but I think they did a lot of things with Venom in the comics that they probably shouldn't have back then. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> But um, again, it's a it, it was a very strong scene, and uh, again, one of the worst first dates ever in animation, that's for sure. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I and I know this is one of Kristen's favorite scenes, and that Jameson has. It a really is big absolutely my one of my absolute favorite scenes in the entire episode. It was one of the big things about this episode period that I really loved because it was just so many subtle little things like that really built on it gave the episode body. And then Jameson, as you know, Greg just said that moment where he pulls a total 180 in his personality, just a total flip from having to immediately know who got hurt 
to finding out it's Aunt May. And all of a sudden, something just comes over him. And humanity. He, exactly. Just that moment of humanity. And he realizes, you know what? I'll take over. I'll call Peter myself. And to me, that was just beautifully executed. Well, as always, I, you know, I want to give, uh, I mean, Andrew wrote it great. I also want to give credit to Darren Norris, who, who could do that with Jonah for us, you know, mm-hmm. turn Jonah on a dime like that and make it believable, you know, have this guy so going from, Oh good. People were hurt. I got to get that info. And then hearing that it's may, I mean, you know, one thing that I think is important is you've got to believe that Jonah deep down cares about Peter Parker. Um, and I think that's essential. You know, Pete may drive him crazy and God knows Jonah yells at him all the time, but Jonah yells at everybody. You know, you know, he cares about Robbie, you know, he cares about Betty. Um, and so, you know, he cares about Pete. Um, and the fact that he yells at him all the time has nothing to do with anything. Um, and I mean, it does, but it, it doesn't have anything to do with the underlying feelings he has for Pete, which is he sees Pete as a young him, you know, Pete's a go-getter. I don't mean in episode one, certainly when it was just this annoying kid, but Pete is a go-getter who gets pictures and is willing to go into a garbage dump to get him. And, and you know, literally that when Jonah was his age, he went into garbage dumps to get stories. He may not have been a photographer, but he was a reporter and, you know, so he knows, you know, tomato juice. That's what you need to get rid of (laughs) that smell. You know, he knows that because he did it. So the fact that Pete does it, you know, no matter what he says to the kid's face, he admires this kid. And there's a little respect. Yeah. I like to think that if Peter wasn't at that moment bonded with the symbiote, he would have answered that phone. Of course. Yeah, well, you know, Jonah does tend to yell at him, so you never know. But um, <laughs> like, there's well, no way for Peter to know what the subject matter of the conversation was. Would have been. But it's also, I think, life. it's also telling that I, I'm not sure that's the first time Pete starts to say "we" when he's when, about the phone. It, I, you know, I'd have to go back and look at the, or watch it again. Yeah, I think I said Jonah probably calling to yell at us. Yeah, that yeah. is actually the first time in the episode. Um, actually, the first time period since the bonding with Symbiote, he starts saying, "You know, us and we." Yeah. So there's that element to me is like that's the main reason he doesn't answer it is like the Symbiote is really starting to take him over. Yeah, and speaking of the symbiote, it takes him on a little on a little joyride, and that's got to be one of the best fight scenes I've ever seen in animation. I mean, that's up there with some of the best fight scenes in Avatar: The Last Airbender, which is really renowned for its fight scenes. I mean, that was that's terrific to watch. Yeah, I mean, very well choreographed. I mean, that was awesome. I will say, um, I you know. I think probably every animation writer does this. You watch the the episode and you see how much of your, you know, how much of your stuff got through. Um, and there's some of my stuff in there and there's some of it that Jennifer Coyle, who directed it, took and spun in a new direction. And, you know, sometimes you'll watch action and you go, yeah, that's not really what I was thinking. And then there's sometimes when you watch action, you go, I would never even have thought of that. That's genius. And she did that several times. Um, so high praise to Jennifer Coyle. Uh, 
Yeah. And actually, that's leading me to... Hey, go on. No, I just agree. I mean, the work that Jennifer and her board artists and Vic Cook did uh, in general, but specifically on this episode, is stellar. And there, there's just, you know, there's so much snap and so much bite to this fight scene and, and to the choreography of it. Um, and, you know, I, it, one thing I always loved about this is that there's no quippage whatsoever. And you don't realize until after the battle that the reason for that is because Pete's sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, he's unconscious. And I always wondered, like, I mean, but that was our big sort of hint that that's what was going on there. He doesn't quit. And Ock even goes so far as to call him out on it. Um, and I wondered, I always wondered people watching it for the first time, you know, whether they noticed that. Um, or whether it's only in hindsight that they go, oh my God, that's why he wasn't quipping, you know, that kind of thing. Because we would never have a battle with Spider-Man not quipping. I would never do right. that. I think uh, Rhino even points it out. Too scared to make a joke. Yeah, he does say it. Yeah, he does. Uh-huh. It was uh, There was some amazing dialogue there regardless. I mean, uh, it still floors me to this day that Ox line, Rhino, you won the coin toss where you crush his skull or simply impale his heart on your horn, made it onto what is essentially a kid's WB show. Usually I'm so used to, I would think on most other networks, they would say it would be Rhino, you won the coin toss, destroy him or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it, sometimes it, things would get through and we'd just go, wow. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, if we had tried to show that, <laughs> that would have been a very oh, different no. story. <laughs> um, but uh, but we got to say it, which was pretty cool. I mean, we um, had a pretty good S and P executive on that show who um, was pretty uh, understanding about what we were trying to do. And your show definitely, yeah, and it and you definitely benefited. From it, I mean, the '90s Spider-Man show was infamous for not being able to say "kill" or "death" or anything, and they would use "destroy" almost all the time. I mean, and not really to denigrate it, but I remember there was a time when I was thinking, "Oh, come on, buy a thesaurus! Isn't there another word you could use?" I mean, and I know uh, to bring to gargoyles, Demona used to say "destroy" a lot of them. Marina Sirtis really sold it, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, we we got to say "kill" when it really counted. Um, on time. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, it, it's a tough thing to, to get through on, uh, most networks, um, particularly broadcast and that was broadcast. I and, mean, um, the rules are very specific for broadcast television because they're FCC driven, um, for cable television, the rules are, um, non-existent because they're not covered by the FCC, but most of the children's networks follow the basic FCC guidelines. And some of them go over the top with them. Um, just, I mean, show by show, you could be on a cable network that doesn't have to obey any of these rules. And suddenly they're interpreting these rules in in the most draconian possible fashion. And then you'll be on another show, sometimes on the very same network with a different executive and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we're cable, whatever. Um, oh, yeah. And it's all over the map, really. 
Yeah, a prime example of that on the same network was I mentioned earlier that the 90s show couldn't call them the Sinister Six. They called them the Insidious Six because their censor did not like the word, the word sinister. Meanwhile, over on X-Men, they had Mr. Sinister as one of their main villains. Yeah, it makes that made no sense. I mean, you know, the difference between Sinister and Insidious makes no, I, don't, I mean, makes no sense. The only thing I can think of is that the S&P executive was left-handed and somehow still associated that with <laughs> left-handed and thought it was a, it was a slur. Um, that is great. <laughs> I'm, by the way, just to be clear, I'm making that up. That's complete bullshit there. Cause I, I mean, among other things, I had nothing to do with the nineties show. I don't know anything about what went on behind the scene, but also I, I'm, completely talking through my ass here so uh well that's part of the fun of being a writer <laughs> yeah it is but still like i said when we when we got to that moment the fact that they didn't they just said that it was such graphic language i mean i know you didn't show it but it's so descriptive at the same time i mean you can easily sort of picture in your head it happening it's like that moment where Oct tells peter it's like i can't wait to look at his suit and then peel it from your body <laughs> like ooh. That could be taken a few different ways. It's just a fun line. <laughs> wow. I just thought it was evil, but now you made it awkward. <laughs> <laughs> See, when I execute it like that, it makes it awkward. That's the thing. <laughs> but it's a fun and line. So... We go so many ways. <laughs> it was never intended to be a black cat moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, isn't he, doesn't he talk about peeling the suit and the skin off or something? I mean, I feel like it was graphic, but yeah, in a no, violent just... way, not a sexual way. <laughs> no, no, it's not so much that it was interpreted in a sexual form, at least on my end. It's just like, just that image of it being torn from his, you know, lifeless body. It's like, Oh, I, I, I seriously like that. I don't know why, but just that image is fun. <laughs> kind of scary also, but yeah, I mean, I, I just felt Ock really came into his own in this episode. I mean, yeah, he had his big episode a few a couple, a few weeks ago, but here he's a really a supervillain now. He's a leader among supervillains. He's not just, I mean, and the last time he was a supervillain, but he felt a bit more like a disgruntled employee. Now he's... Not calling himself the master planner yet, but he, it feels like he's there. This makes me so happy. <laughs> but yeah, Ock was one of the highlights of this episode. And there were always so many. And uh, a, a scene that I really like, it's just a small thing, but all those supervillains having dinner while the cops have them surrounded. It's just a little touch that okay. I enjoyed. Because I'm thinking you're a supervillain, the group of supervillains who escaped from prison. Why not? Yeah. Uh, that was fun. Uh, it was also a chance to let uh, Andrew... Uh, sort of really spell out that they weren't like monolithic, um, that they each had their own motivations. They each had their own reason uh, for being villains, you know, from Sandman just wanting to get rich off it to uh, um, Vulture really wanting to focus back on Osborne um, and Shocker basically being a hired gun and, uh, and they all had their own, you know, Electro just being sort of batshit crazy and, and, uh, and Rhino just wanting to pound Spider-Man. And, you know, but the one thing they could all agree on is that Spider-Man was in their way. And so yeah. some of them wanted him dead more than others. 
Um, but at the end of the day, they all agreed he was in the way. They had to get rid of him and that this was the best shot to do in that. And that was, and this is, that was yeah. sorry, one of the things about this episode that I, I, you know, was such a great challenge was not only making sure each of these guys got, you know, a chance to say their lines, but, but you know, spoken character and, and they sounded like themselves um, and articulated their own viewpoint. There's a lot of mouths to feed um, in this episode. Uh, and yeah, that was, a, that was sort of a very gratifying way to be able to do it. And, and again, Peter McNichol, so archly delightful, you know, gentleman and rhino. Yeah, uh, I love that line. That was so <laughs> I mean, I look at this and I think McNichol is one of the more underrated voice actors for this genre of superhero cartoons. I mean, everyone talks about Mark Hamill's Joker, and for good reason. He was terrific, and Steve Blum's Green Goblin gets talked about like that nowadays. Maybe not quite as much when he comes up. He is, but McNichols' arc was just perfect. Oh, glorious. And I would like to see more people talk about him. Well, and Peter's such a joy to work with. I mean, uh, I've worked with him now on three shows. He was Doc, obviously, on uh, Spider-Man, and he was... uh, Professor Ivo for me on Young Justice, and then he was uh, on the first season of Star Wars Rebels as this uh, character whose name I'm completely blanking out on now, which is embarrassing. But uh, I'm um, just imagining Doc Ock as a Sith Lord now with four lightsabers in his arms. <laughs> yeah, no, oh my he wasn't that. <laughs> I mean, it was a very different character, and yet he. Uh, He played him great. And, you know, what's great about Peter is that he plays this timid um, uh, Otto Octavius in the first few episodes and then is able to take that character and do this twist for him and and really make it play as not just a, you know, as not just this abrupt shift, but as something that you believe came out of the timid guy you met in the first place and yet he's just as megalomaniac as you want doc to be yeah this episode is also noteworthy for uh electro and ox first real interactions with each other and Ox becoming a uh wicked father figure to him yeah it's fine i I thought that was an interesting dynamic that uh you don't see very often any any in any other um iteration yeah, no, it not, just sort not. of developed naturally out of who the characters were and where they'd come from specifically in our version of things. And so it was fun to play. Yeah, there, there's that moment in the sewers where Electro doesn't want to get out. He wants to help hunt Spidey, and Ock just gives him that Maxwell, like a stern but at the same time benevolent father. And <laughs> Electro's just, uh, okay, yeah, and he just leaves. I mean, he... <laughs> Ock didn't have to lecture him, didn't have to really say or do much. He just had to say his name. I mean, you guys, you're, I'm the only one here who's not a parent. I'm sure you've all been there. Yeah, definitely been there. <laughs> Actually, it's one of the things I appreciated about that dynamic is, like, even Electro has the, you know, the, the adoring child moment where he points out to everyone, it's like, we just better listen to Doc here. And, like, Okay, um, yeah, I'm definitely seeing the father-son dynamic that you're pointing out, and I definitely enjoyed that for what it was. 
Well, and, uh, you know, to me that came out a little bit of, of the fact that, yes, uh, Ock was the only one who contacted him when he was, uh, you know, in Ravencroft. And so there's the gratitude of that, but, you know, the character is not presented as being a rocket scientist and the fact that Ock deigns to treat him as any sort of, uh, you know, to include him in these things, that's, that's super gratifying. And he knows that Ock is much smarter than he is. So it's like, dude, guys, this is our best chance of success. We've all failed, you know, previously. Man with a plan, listen to him. Uh-huh. And uh, here's another question, and I apologize for this one. I remember this rumor was going on for a little while when the episode first aired. Some people thought that, I don't know, the way the last shot just has that close-up on Pete where he's kind of not moving. People thought that the last line was altered from uh, a note from Kids WB or something. I don't know, but... Um, I mean, what, did anything like that happen? I would tend to think the answer is no, but what, what's the last line? I can't remember. Um, you know, uh, your, your, your aunt had a heart attack. She's going to be okay, but she's in the hospital, and Peter's eyes go wide, and it cuts to black. People thought that – some people thought that came off like she had a heart attack, and normally that would be the uh, big cliffhanger. Instead of uh, falling up there was a okay. change to the line. I don't remember who insisted on it. If It, was, it might have been Kids WB, but it might have just as easily been uh, Marvel. Um, but it was to Mary Jane's line. Um, yeah, that's not, what I meant. There was no line for Peter. We wanted to go out on his reaction. The yeah, change, that's what I meant, though, M- MJ's line, yeah. Yeah, the, the she's going to be okay was added. Um, but it was added early on. It's not like it was added after the after- animation came in or anything like that. It, you know, it was, this was a script note, um, from whoever, uh, not a uh, not a note after animation. It's not like we went in and picked up a, the dialogue or something like that. It was uh, early on. So if people are looking at frames of animation and going, see, there's evidence, well, that's ridiculous because it was all done after, <laughs> okay, fair- long after the change took place. But, yeah, there was the addition of that, you know, half sentence of she's going to be okay, but... Um, because uh, they felt that for kids programming, the kids needed to be reassured it, within this episode that Aunt May wasn't dead. Um, and the my argument was is that we were, we're not saying she's dead. We're saying she had a heart attack and is in the hospital. And they're like, we need more reassurance than that. That's, we I definitely recall that. Why impaled her on his horn? <laughs> Uh, I mean, this is just such a good episode, and uh, we're about, I think we're about to go out to uh, head out, but before we do, um, Andrew, there's something else I want to mention, another show you did, you did another show around the same time, Transformers Animated, and you wrote, which which is a show I really enjoyed, you wrote three episodes with the character of Lockdown, and I thought those were really fun, with Lance Henriksen's, especially, I mean, uh, what was that like? (laughs) Do you... Did you create the, that character? Because I didn't see the movie, but I heard he ended up in a movie. Um, I, you know, when, whenever the, the, it was 2014 that uh, that movie came out, and somebody, 
said to me, hey, have you seen the new Transformers movie? And I went, no. And he goes, go see it. And I went, why? He goes, you'll see. And so, of course, Lockdown is the main villain in that uh, in that movie. And that made me actually go back and do some research. Like, I can't have created that. There must have been. I mean, I remember creating it, but I was thinking, like, it can't be. Um, and I did some research, and yeah, the first time lockdown ever appeared was uh, was in Transformers Animated, that uh, that Marty Eisenberg and I put together um, that episode, and and the subsequent episodes. And I think because I had done that, he gave me all the lockdown episodes to write. So I feel like I had a little paternal uh, feelings for lockdown, as much of a son of a bitch as he is. Part of my franchise. <laughs> it's kind of like the Boba Fett of that franchise. Yeah, he kind of is, um, and he's got his little, uh, you know, he's got his ship and he's got his mods, and he's uh, and, and Lance was a delight, by the way. You know, uh, actually, the 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 most awesome thing was the final episode that he was in with Yokotron, which was done by George Takei. Um, so we got. That was a great episode for me to sort of... The, the best day for any animation writer is the day you get invited to the recording because you get to see people, you know, bring your words to life. And uh, with those two, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Did Lance play him in the movie? I don't think he did. Um, I'm pretty sure he didn't, in fact. That would have been great. That would have been hilarious. Uh, that man's got one of the most badass voices I've ever heard in anything. <laughs> but um, anyway, well, thank you for answering all the questions. And are there any uh, is there any projects or anything you would like to promote before we end this uh, interview? Andrew, uh, Andrew, go first. Go for it, Greg. Uh, all right. Well, I, as always, I want to. Um... Plug my novels, Reign of the Ghosts and Spirits of Ash and Foam, but I have a third novel to plug. Uh, World of Warcraft Traveler comes out in November. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a, uh, I'm really proud of it. Um, it's obviously set in Blizzard's World of Warcraft universe and uh, tells an original story um, with an original group of characters. Um, but firmly set, and it, you know, canon to the World of Warcraft universe, and that'll be out in November. But meanwhile, in the meantime, um, you can get Reign of the Ghosts or Spirits of Ash and Foam on Amazon or at any bookstore, um, and you can get uh, the Reign of the Ghosts full cast unabridged audio play with a cast that includes Marina Sirtis, Brent Spiner, Ed Asner. Josh Keaton, the spectacular Spider-Man himself, and many others, uh, Steve Bloom, uh, Vanessa Marshall, a bunch of people who were on Spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, and that's available now um, at gumroad, G-U-M-R-O-A-D.com slash reign of the ghosts. Um, you can download that now from there. Um, it'll eventually be available uh, other places as well, but right now you, you don't have to wait. You can get it off of Gumroad. Cool. And, uh, well, I've been working at uh, Blizzard Entertainment for the last year and a half, and uh, I've been working on uh, cinematics for their new game, Overwatch. Um, so get the game. 
Um, I've been writing a couple comics, so watch the cinematics, buy, get the comics. They're all uh, digital. Um, and uh, the game drops in about a week and a half. So go check that out. Definitely. Well, thank you both, and uh, thank you, Chris Nolso, and uh, it's been fun, and we'll be back next month where we really dive into Peter's head. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> You won the coin toss. Will you crush his skull or simply impale his heart on your horns?